0: 3. Funerals Funerals are interesting, because they are so conservative and even reactionary in their meaning to people. A couple planning to marry may have bizarre ideas as to how the noob deals should be conducted. One can persuade them to conform to the church's norm, or else seek another pastor. In funerals, however, the family usually follows established patterns. Burials are sometimes in a family plot several states away, in what was once a home area and people often do not think about a funeral until a death occurs in the family. I was summoned at every death on the reservation, Christian or non-Christian, Paiute or Shoshone, Peyote or non Peyote users. The older Indians felt that Christians have more to say about death and the afterlife than anyone else, certainly more than their own sages. Cemeteries are Christian inventions, as they saw it. In earlier years, the Paiutes and Shoshones buried their dead near their campsite, wherever that might be. If hunger, a battle, or an epidemic killed off a number of people at once, they were all buried at that site. It was not regarded as holy ground, as some claim, but evil ground, because they feared the spirits of the dead. For these Indians, the dead resented the fuller life of the living. As spirits, they had only a half-life, and they turned envious of their own family members and could harm them. Thorny branches of wild rose bushes were immediately laid over the body at the moment of death, to prevent the man's spirit from crawling out of the body to cause trouble. The Christians laughed at the custom and saw it as revelatory of the hold of the past on some families only marginally under Christian influence. On some reservations, I was told, a house would be burned if someone died in it. Under Roosevelt, this caused the Federal Housing Administration much trouble because a house built with a federal loan would go up in smoke and payments would cease. At Owyhee, as death approached, some families protected their cabin by moving a dying person into a tent pitched outside. This would be done even in zero-degree weather with snow on the ground. There was no cruelty in this. The dying person would be kept well-bundled and the tent warmed. There would be a dinner for all who came to the funeral. Usually a cow was butchered. The meat was prepared outside the house and served there to the many that came. There was a stylized mourning, a wailing beside the body. The older people, especially the women, were very good wailers. I do not say that critically. Each death, especially that of an elderly person meant for them the passing of a familiar way of life. Women were both the most conservative as well as the most liberal members of the community. In a way that few men did, they resented the passing of the old order, and felt most helpless as the old certainties declined. On the other hand, the young women reveled in sexual freedom. There were penalties for adultery in the old days, such as cutting off a woman's nose. I knew one such woman. She was not a pretty sight. It was a major penalty that discouraged lovers but the husband had to see his wife in that condition from then on. In those days, it was rare for an older woman to be an alcoholic. Many older men were, and the young men and women more so. Older women were disciplined workers, the mainstay of most non-Christian families. The passing of the old ways distressed them. They were also concerned about others. Jenny Owyhee's daughter, Judy, herself an elderly woman, a Christian with a superb zest for life and a rich sense of humor, Married, while I was there, a young man between 18 to 25 years old. He was tubercular, and had a very limited lifespan ahead. He gave Judy a husband in his person, and she gave him a wife who cared for him tenderly, kept him happy, and provided a robust atmosphere which was remarkable. Indians did not share in the American conventions regarding the marriage of an old woman to a young man. Funerals brought the past to mind. At times, an old Indian would speak about the past. Not long after my arrival on the reservation, at a funeral dinner, one old Indian, a gracious and handsome man, summoned all present, speaking in Shoshone, to return to the wolf cult. The wolf, he said, was their true father. Even the white man's science, he went on, and the white man's schools taught that men were descended from animals. To him, their evolutionary dogma was a vindication of the ancient Indian faith. He saw the degeneration setting into the white man's culture, as exemplified by the personnel of the U.S. Indian Service and he wanted a return to some kind of animism. Such an emphasis was mainly a dying echo of the past. I conducted all the funerals because the people wanted me to. A sermon, however brief, was the central part of the service for them. Most services were held at the graveside. I only recall one in which an Elko mortuary was used. The family prepared the body. Friends dug the grave. Friends, after the service, shoveled dirt onto the coffin and filled the excavation. I always lent a hand with the spade work. For one thing, in the winter it was a way of keeping warm. It was also appreciated by all present. All the cemeteries at Owyhee are the work of Christians, and the older men knew and appreciated this fact. They recognized that Christianity had a compelling word on the meaning of life and death. Instead of a fear of the dead, it required respect. In those days, this Christian perspective was not taken for granted. Once in a while, a man would visit isolated places in Idaho and northern Nevada to show old movies, a source of meager depression income. Usually, these were old cowboy and Indian films. The young Indians in the audience would whoop enthusiastically as the Indians charged a wagon train, and then groan as the wagon train's defenders drove off the horsemen. On a few occasions, a comedy would be shown, which would include a ghost and maybe a frightened black man. What was impressive to the audience was that the hero did not fear the ghost and that a ghost story was something comical to the white man. Little things like this were very telling to the Indians, and important for them in seeing the difference between the Indian world and the Christian world. At every turn they saw the differences. One telling fact to them was the indifference of virtually all Indian service personnel to Christianity. To them, it meant that Washington, D.C., and all it represented, was alien to Christianity. Since they associated Christianity with the white man, it meant to them that the white leadership treated Christianity with disrespect. This was difficult for them to understand. For them, a people and their religion were inseparable. The attitude of the Indian service told them of the white man's abandonment of Christianity. Then why was I there? What was the white man trying to do? The Indians were familiar, in earlier years, with cast-off clothing being passed on by white families to the Indians. Were the whites also passing on their cast-off religion? John Paradise, a Shoshone, subscribed to the Elko Nevada Daily Paper. He enjoyed reading, and he was familiar with several periodicals. I spent the better part of a day trying to explain to him that Christianity was not the white man's religion, that some white men were atheists, agnostics, or members of various non-Christian religious groups. Christianity, I told him, was not an ethnic faith, but represented a separate realm, a kingdom of universal scope. The world and the United States, I told him, will be judged by Christ the King, whose realm is under none and over all. Finally, he grasped the point and was amazed. In his earlier understanding, everything came out of the natural order. But now he had heard something new and amazing. For the first time, he understood the thrust of biblical faith as an interruption of nature. To him, that was an amazing and nearly inconceivable thing. His view of the natural order included concepts that a scientist would have found untenable. All the same, John Paradise and the scientist would have agreed on the ultimacy of the natural order. Many of the older Indians talked of the parallels to Genesis in their myths. The flood and Noah were in particular important to them, and they explained many things in terms of a universal flood. At the same time, the flood and other events were all seen as aspects of the natural order. The world was full of supernormal things, but for them, empty of the God of Scripture. They were as ready to avoid Christ and the supernatural as was Charles Darwin.